Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Le Moodcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Limud Seattle 2019 presenter Tony Ramsey. After Tony achieved what society told him was a successful life, he noticed he wasn't happy. This set him on a course of simplifying his life. When I changed my focus from moreness to enoughness, it opened me up just by that freeing up of time. Your session at Limud last year, Limud 2019, was Being Happy with One's Portion, The Jewish Roots of Voluntary Simplicity. Can you tell me why you chose to teach that session last year? Sure. Uh, You know, I was the programming team co-lead for Limud last year, and so one of the big messages that I was trying to drive home with folks in the community was that Limud is unique in that it's a creation of our community and that every member of our community has something to bring. Limud has this idea that anyone can be a teacher and we're all students. And I don't know why as programming team lead, I didn't think that I had the ability to present at Limud. Uh, I think part of it had to do with the fact that I'm a convert to Judaism and it had been a relatively recent conversion. So I didn't really know what I had to bring to the table. And one of my track leads ended up deciding that she was going to put in a proposal when she hadn't planned on it because she was going out to people asking them to submit proposals. She was like, why don't I submit one? And that really inspired me. It inspired me to think about, well, wait a second. I have this real interest in voluntary simplicity, which came from this personal life journey that I've been on. Why don't I look at what Judaism has to say about voluntary simplicity and do a session on that? So just based on the inspiration of my track lead who decided to submit a proposal and also based on my own personal life journey and wanting to just know, having some curiosity about what is it that Judaism has to say about consumption, about possessions. Those are those are issues that impacts everybody. Um, we as a society are caught up in those issues. By knowing what Judaism has to say about voluntary simplicity, it can give you some framing and some sort of deep wisdom to go along with some of the modern movements that are going on around around simplicity. So you said you had been on a personal life journey that made you interested in voluntary simplicity. Could you go a little more in depth into that? Yeah. So I'm the first in my family to go to college, the first one to get a degree. And when I was a kid, my mom, I remember distinctly being in the car with her and being like, how do you, how do you be happy? You know, what's my future going to be? My mom was asking me those questions that are fun to ask kids. And I said, I wanted to be a teacher. And she said, well, no, you know, you've got to make money. (laughs) So she said, you know, you got to go to college. You've got to become a lawyer and you've got to make six figures. And somehow that message lodged itself into my brain. And I really took it to heart as a kid. I don't know if it's because of youthful exuberance or what, but I really 
decided that that's what I was going to do. And so I did all those things. I was the first in my family to graduate college. I went to Seattle U, ended up going back to UW Law to get my law degree. Such a great decision. I'm so glad I did. It really teaches me how to think about problems. But after practicing law for five years and, and, and getting that last goal of getting to six figures, I looked at my life and, and my life didn't reflect the level of happiness that I thought I should have achieved given that I had achieved all three of these goals that I had set out for myself as, as a young person. And so I looked around and I said, what the heck? Why am I not happy? I wasn't. And I was going through a divorce and, and I had all this stuff. And, you know, divorce, you're trying to decide who gets what. And so I said, well, I got to go through all my stuff anyway. I need to downsize. My apartment's way smaller than where I was living. So let me go through all my things. And I looked around and I found the, the book by Marie Kondo. And I read that book. And, and early in the book, she says she's kind of trying to make her pitch. And one of the things that she said was that people who had read her book went on a journey themselves and that they wrote her years later about how they had made huge changes in their life after going through this decluttering process. And I remember reading that and thinking, yeah, okay, whatever, Marie Kondo, you're trying to sell this book to me. But the process was great. The logic of the process was great. And I went through that process. And in simplifying my possessions, I felt freer. I felt more alive. And when I had done that, I immediately was looking at my Facebook page and I was like, wait a second, not everybody on my Facebook page <laughs> brings me joy. I wouldn't even probably talk to half of these people if I saw them on the street. So I pared down my Facebook friends and then just started to look at other aspects of my life. And, and ultimately, it led to a job change. That's a, a long-winded way of giving you the full story, but it really was a journey and it really did lead to some pretty, pretty drastic changes that I made in my life. Right. You know, what's interesting to me is that you started with paring down your possessions, moved on to your Facebook, and then it really started to affect how you made much broader decisions about your life path. So I'm wondering how you think about that relationship between possessions, friends, thought processes. How do those things affect each other? Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with changing the frame. The research has shown that when somebody's trying to make a successful change in their life, a change of habits, one of the things that's really important is having a change of frame as part of that. When you change your frame, you have a new perspective, a new way of thinking about things and a new way of taking in experiences. So by going through this journey that started with possessions and letting go essentially of things that you paid for, things that you paid good money for, you had to work a job that was stressing you out. You gave up your time. You bought these things and now you're just letting them go on your buy nothing group. To me, going through that process really drove home the fact that all of this work that I had been doing to get to six figures and then to go and, and make money and work hard was because I was trying to fulfill something that society was saying I should want. I should want more. We live in a capitalist world, and the driving feature of that world is 
a real value judgment around the idea that more is better. How do we know the economy is strong? Because the economy is growing. How do we know that we are doing better than our parents? Because we make more money than our parents. But is that really how we should be judging whether or not we are better off? To me, by going through my possessions and realizing that I was letting go of all these things that I had paid good money for and that that money was something that I had exchanged my time for, it really drove home why that matters. It let me change my frame so that I could really see here is essentially, uh, and this is an idea from another really great author who wrote a book on finances called Your Money or Your Life. Uh, essentially, what she says is that our only real um, asset is our time. We are born and we're all going to die. And so we have X number of hours on this planet. And we can do whatever we want. We have so much choice about what we're going to do with the amount of time that we have on this earth. So, so how can you make that meaningful? And I, I realized that exchanging my time for money, that's a necessary part of living in our society, but that I get to make choices that are in line with my values about what's a good exchange of my time for money. How much money do I really need? It let me right-size my life. And we live in this society where everybody you talk to, no matter who it is, says that they are strapped for time. There's this persistent idea that there's just not enough time, not enough hours in the day. And when you simplify your life, you are freeing up some of that time to focus it in, instead of on the relentless pursuit of money and possessions and more and better which ultimately don't make you happy. The science shows this paradox of, oh, I want this new car. You get the new car, you're happy for a little while, and then you just kind of go back to your normal levels of happiness. So for me, what it was about was raising my normal level of happiness through something other than possessions. So what I'm hearing is besides working through what makes you happy, trying to find better solutions for how to spend your time, it seems like this process also helped you realize that a lot of the assumptions that you had made about life weren't necessarily the best ways of doing things. And I'm wondering, do you feel like that process sort of opened you up, um, made you a type of person that can actually have more choices? Totally. It's almost like when I think about it, before I discovered voluntary simplicity, I had all these values inside of me, like positive values. I really value learning and curiosity. I value making our world a better place. Those were all values, but I was kind of stuck. I, I didn't know how to translate those values in a way that would make me happy, in a way that would allow me to live the life that I wanted to live. It was almost like I just didn't know there was another option out there, that there was another option besides the relentless pursuit of more. And when I changed my focus from moreness to enoughness, it opened me up just by that freeing up of time. I didn't need so many possessions. So here I was. I went from always living paycheck to paycheck, even on a really well-paying job, to having leftover 
at the end of the month and mm. being able to put that towards my goal. I paid off over $20,000 in credit card debt just by simplifying my life. And when that stress and weight of moreness and of debt disappeared from my life, it opened me up to the possibility of committing a substantial amount of time to Limud, for example, where I took on a new role as a programming team co-lead. I did that while I was a practicing attorney, which is a pretty stressful job. But I got to this idea of enoughness and I realized I wasn't happy so much in my career. The parts of my job that I liked were the learning, meeting with people, strategizing. But 80% of my time, I was sitting alone in my office, plugging away at documents, which is just fine. Uh, but it wasn't for me. What I really enjoyed was the relationship building and the strategy and the working on a team. And so Thruly Mood, I was able to do all of that because I had freed up all this time. And those relationships have enriched my life. Mm. Those relationships are continuing to develop. I, I felt so alone in the world. And now I have this amazing community of people. And part of that's Lee Mood, but part of that is I stopped focusing on more and started to focus on enoughness. So I had time left over to dedicate towards relationships, to really invest in in the people around me. And can you tell us a little bit about your current job, the one that you decided to switch to, to make your life more fulfilling and what fulfillment you get out of that job, your tasks, your workplace, your coworkers? Sure. As the programming team co-lead, what I really got to do was put together a team of people and then I got to see the magic that happens when you put smart people together who care and set a goal in front of them. People take ownership and they step up and you create something really beautiful. When I was at Lee Mood and you know, there were so many cool moments, but we did a closing nigun and nobody knew whether that would work. You know, how are we all gonna come together? We didn't have any space in the venue that was big enough for everybody to be in the same room. And so we did this closing nigun by sending out the song in advance, and then we had musicians who brought it in, and it all worked, and I felt it click. And I was like, we created this. Our community created this. And to me, there was something really moving about being part of, of a community-created event. And so I looked around, and, and one of my team members had heard about an opening at the Jewish Federation. They were looking for someone to manage their endowment and plan giving uh, efforts. And she brought this to my attention and reached out to Nancy Greer, the CEO of the Federation, to see if the position was open, and it was. And so I went through the application process. I said, why not see whether this is something that could be a fit for me? Because it was very compelling. So I started the interview process and, and ultimately was hired as the director of endowment and plan giving at the Jewish Federation. And what's very inspiring is hearing the stories of why people decide to give and then getting to be a part of their giving process, getting to be part of the conversations that they're having uh, is to how do we pass on our philanthropic values to our children? How do we support the causes that have mattered to us in our life? 
how do we decide what charities to give to and how much and what our priorities are? And how do we have the most impact with our charitable dollars? Those are conversations that I never got to have as an attorney. Mm. Um, you know, estate planning is an area where you're talking about the similar kinds of things, but there's also a way of doing estate planning. The vast majority of estate planners that you go see are going to assume without even asking you that you want all of your money to go to your surviving spouse and that when your surviving spouse is gone, you want all of your money to go to a trust for your kids and that that trust eventually is going to terminate and it's going to distribute out to those kids or maybe it'll be a lifetime trust for them. But it assumes that all you care about is keeping your money in your family. And of course that's important. Everybody cares about making sure their family is in a good spot. But there's a, a component where, as in my current role, I get to say, well, wait a second. Sure, you can take care of your family, but it's also this time in, in our lives when we've just left the earth. We have all these possessions that are there. And why not say 10% of that I would put towards charity? Why not? And I found this organization, Leave 10, that essentially says we don't get to do a 10% tithe during our life. But when we're gone, we have a real opportunity because we're not here anymore uh, to do some good and to have to leave a legacy. And so for me, that's really just such an inspiring conversation that I get to have over and over again with folks about what are their Jewish values, what's the journey that they're on, how do they pass those values on to their kids, and how do they create a legacy for themselves that's going to live on after they're gone. Right. So let's get back to the session. You were talking about how when you were programming lead, you had this epiphany, oh, yeah, why don't I teach a session on this concept, this pursuit that's been so important to me in these past few years, the pursuit of voluntary simplicity? I can teach that. But then you realized you wanted to research how the rabbis related to it and what they had to say about it. So maybe we can start talking about some of the sources that you found. So what do you think conveys their relationship to this concept? Or what few sources do you think are the most important? You know, I think when we talk about the tradition, what's great about Judaism is it's almost like this big Reddit board that's been happening across time where the rabbis are in conversation with each other. Rabbis from a way later period are ha seeming to have conversations with rabbis who were much earlier. We're not ignoring the minority viewpoints. We're pulling those forward. So you can find, it seems, at least in my limited perspective, someone to say a lot of different things. What's cool about Judaism is it's just this endless ocean of, of opinions that you get to kind of dive in through and find your, your place in. And so I knew I had this passion for voluntary simplicity, and, and I had a sense that Judaism would probably have some sources to support that, but I don't think I knew for sure until I started the research for my session. And, and when I started, I started with a place that I think a lot of people do when they're trying to access the Jewish wisdom tradition. They, I started with Pirkei Avot, the mm -hmm. wisdom of the ancestors, which are these little sound bites of knowledge, little nuggets of communal wisdom that that reflect the values of our tradition. And 
you find in there from Benzoma, who is rich, he who's happy with his portion. When I saw that, I'm like, oh, that's that's voluntary simplicity right there. It's It's saying, how can you be happy? Be happy with what you have. When I saw that, it was pretty easy to find other sources that support changing our relationship. So another one was Hillel, who said, also in Pirkei Avot, the more possessions, the more worry. And then, you know, what's what's really beautiful about Judaism is I think that throughout our history, we've had a special relationship with time. And that's because in Judaism, we have something that's the Shabbat. And Shabbat is a time each week where we as Jews are encouraged to to take some time out, to refrain from creating more, and to sit in enoughness and to live in enoughness. And what happens when we do that? Well, we enliven our relationships with our family. We're spending time with them because we don't have the television on or our phones to distract us and screen time. And we're not trying to do anything. We're not trying to get any work done. So what do we do? We spend time with our family. We play board games with each other. We do learning. We sing around a Shabbat table together or around dinner. And those are moments of authentic connection between us as people. So instead of us connecting to this fragmented world of screens and moreness, we have this sacred time for us each week to replenish ourselves and to connect with other human beings in a really beautiful way. And and it's not just Jews who have this opportunity. You know, when when this is uh, this is an Exodus about Shabbat, uh, it's you, your son or daughter, your male or female male slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. Everybody, including our animals. All of us are entitled to this time of rest and enoughness and to sit into that. And I think that that's that's really, to me, something that our tradition speaks very strongly about this. It's not as if you can't find sources that say, hey, wealth is an okay thing uh, because those sources are out there. But I think that if you look at those sources, what they're saying is, Judaism does not have a tradition of asceticism, that there's nothing in our tradition that says going off and sitting alone and being a hermit to get closer to God is is the way. Uh, Judaism wants us to live in community and indeed wants us to have simcha. Simcha is a, a core joy. And so uh, we celebrate with wine sacred occasions because wine brings simcha. Uh, and there's, I think that that's really the message. I don't think the message is pursue wealth from an unlimited extent. It's live this life that we're in and enjoy it, which I think fits really well with voluntary simplicity because I think people think voluntary simplicity, they think, oh, you're asking me to be an ascetic and to really cut back on how I'm living my life and to not do things that I enjoy. Not at all. Voluntary simplicity says, figure out what it is you care about and what you like doing and what kind of experiences you want to have and find a way to maneuver your life to do that. And so I think that even the the textual traditions that talk about wealth and talk about not being an ascetic in Judaism, I think even those sources fit into this broader set of sources that say, yeah, okay, money, wealth, pursue them, but that's not ultimately what's going to make you happy. 
that's not ultimately going to lead to the most fulfilling life. So last question. Mm -hmm. In doing research for this interview, I read an article about the Jewish relationship to wealth and ostentatious wealth and what the rabbis had to say about that. And one of the things they said is, you know, wealth is okay, but you don't want to show it off for various reasons. And one of the reasons they cited was if you get all these beautiful showy things, other people will want to get them too, but they don't have the means to get them and they'll take out loans and put themselves in places of hardship because they can't actually afford them. And I think, you know, when it got to the section of like historically what laws did different communities put into place, the biggest one had to do with weddings. So over and over again through the centuries, the rabbis were telling their congregations, their communities, stop putting on these showy weddings, cut down your smorgasbord, <laughs> limit the amount of guests, this is too much, the parents of the, the couple are going into debt, you gotta cut down. And I know you just got married, so I'm wondering how you incorporated your philosophy of voluntary simplicity into the preparation for your wedding. Yeah. Wow. So we just got married on July 7th. For me, what makes me feel so good about what we put together was that our wedding from front to back was a reflection of our values. I think so much in these life cycle events, there's a tendency to want to do it the way that it's been done. A bar bat mitzvah is a big excuse to throw a prom party for your kid and spend a lot of money. And is that what that ritual, that life cycle ritual is really about? Are those really the values you want your kid to see is like, here's this excuse to get money or gifts or things like that. For a wedding, there's so many books out there that say how a wedding should be. And so you've got to have your colors and you've got to have your tchotchkes to give away to your guests that they're just going to throw away as soon as they get home. There's going to be all this ostentatious food and it's very expensive. You know, when Cara and I started to plan our wedding, we thought about what's the most important to us. That's what we started with. We looked inside ourselves. We wanted to cultivate a communal space that was inclusive. And when I say inclusive, that's both inclusive of people, for example, from my family who are not Jewish, who wouldn't have a lot of knowledge about Judaism, all the way to members of the observant community who care about kashrut and who who we have made these amazing friendships with through Limud, partially, and these people are really important in our lives, we couldn't imagine a simcha that did not accommodate them. And what does that mean? That means being inclusive when it comes to kashrut and having a kosher wedding. Just kashrut and kosher weddings are expensive to throw on. There's a limited number of caterers who can do it, and it's not cheap. And so we we were very lucky to be able to work with someone we met through Limud and say, how can we do a kosher wedding on the cheap? Uh, and so we basically created our own catering team, hired somebody to oversee a crew of people who prepared everything and and she served as the mashkiach and we had a kosher wedding that people could eat at from all walks of Jewish life. And 
when it came to colors, people asked us our colors. We were told this story by uh, someone we know through Kavanaugh who said, well, my colors were love and community. So we adopted that. That became our mantra. Whenever somebody would ask us what our colors were, we said love and community. And by the end of the weekend, that's what came through, um, was we created a space where it was a very, on the one hand, traditional religious Jewish wedding in the sense of we started with two tishes, we had a ketubah signing, we did the ceremony. We weren't hiding our Judaism at all. Uh, we're both text nerds. We both care about the tradition. And for us, being part of something that has been going on for thousands of years and this is the way that Jewish people do weddings, that was really compelling to us. But then we wanted to be inclusive of people. So at our tish, instead of using words, we did nigunim. Everybody can sing a tune. And so at my wedding, I, at my tish, I asked, raise your hand. How many of you haven't been to a tish before? I raised my hand because I hadn't. And then two-thirds of the people in the room hadn't been to a tish before. Despite that, everybody was pounding on the table, drinking shots, having a good time, and everybody was singing. Every video I've seen from my tish, everybody was involved. And, and we carried that through the ceremony. And so at the end of the day, did we spend a ton of money on a photo booth or on these other things? No, because that wasn't what we decided that we cared about. But what we did care about was inviting people in to create our wedding with us. And so we planned a Shabbat service in Ufruf on Saturday morning. So many people read from the Torah for the first time, or, or the people who did Hagba and Galila did that for the first time. Somebody from the observant community read Haftarah for the first time. Uh, it was a really beautiful thing that we were able to create with each other. I read Torah for the first time, so I got to combine my bar mitzvah with my Ufruf, and that was really cool. And then we had a Havdalah on the beach. People got into a circle with us and sang, and we did this ritual and got to know each other. And at our wedding, so many people stepped up to do blessings or to help us make our decorations. And so at the end of the day, it looked like a very polished wedding, uh, but, but we also didn't spend an arm and a leg to get there. And I think that that, at the end of the day, brings me a lot of joy to know that we took this day and we made it holy by inviting people into it to help us create it. And that we've heard from people, hey, I made new friends uh, at your wedding and they've been in touch and are text buddies now and are going to hang out. You know, That to me says we did our wedding right. We created a space that enabled some new connections at our wedding. And that's a success. If people built relationships because of what we put together, that that means something to me. Way more than somebody going home with a with the tchotchke with my name and her name on it and a date, you know. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Awesome. Thank you, Tamar. The Seattle Moodcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamara Labicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Tony Ramsey.